This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Oh, we're, we're blind professors and people wonder what that, how that works. It works just fine, according to Georgina Klieg. She's a senior lecturer at UC Berkeley. I'll sometimes say to the students, I'll be like, look, I can't see your hands if they're raised. Um, so, you know, call out if you have questions. As a creative writing teacher and researcher, Georgina has a lot to say about art, technology, and Helen Keller. Oh, you know, look at poor Helen Keller. She was she was totally blind and totally deaf, and she never complained. If she were here and she said to us, look, that's what the world needed from me. I needed to pretend that every bad thing that happened, I just powered through and overcame, because that is how I was able to inspire people. I have to defend Helen Keller. Um, because, in effect, I'm defending myself. Today on Dangerous Vision, we're going to be talking to Georgina Klieg of the University of California. Georgina, welcome to Dangerous Vision. Thanks so much for joining us here today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The, um, I, I have so much to talk to you about. Uh, obviously, we're, we're fellow professors, I guess fellow senior lecturers, so was, there's lots to talk to on that. And then I've been, uh, I've been reading your books. But, but one thing I was thinking about related, you had a nice uh, discussion uh, of the various names for blindness and the decision as to uh, when to call yourself blind. I guess I thought the terms like um, you know low vision and uh, partial sighted or partially blind or, or legally blind, they all kind of had a, a sort of negative uh, uh, you know tone to me. And uh, I wanted something sexier. Uh, I, de- I decided to, uh, to describe it as dangerous vision. Uh, I feel like I <laughs> see just enough to be dangerous. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so why don't you tell us a little about your experience of sight, just so the listeners can you know know where you're coming from on that, and then uh, and then we'll dig into some of your many uh, thoughts on the subject. Uh, well, I was diagnosed as legally blind when I was 11. the 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 title I was given at the time was um, legally blind with some usable sight, which is when you think about it, a pretty imprecise term, um, and. I was sort of, um, I don't know, it's hard to recreate the the thinking of a child, but I think I was discouraged from, uh, you know, thinking of myself as blind, of using the word blind. Um, I don't really remember what I, how I would describe myself. I, I would be even vaguer and say, oh, I have a problem with my eyes uh, there are no glasses I can wear, so on and so forth. So, um, throughout well, you, had, you had a funny, you had a funny line in the book about. So the book's probably more familiar to me because I read it this weekend. You just read you it, yeah. it twenty years ago. Uh, <laughs> yes. You have a you have a funny line in there about how you would say, you know, oh my my, I can't see well, and they won't give me glasses, yes. right? Uh, yeah. As if you know, sort of like it's the medical establishment's fault. It's not my fault. I thought that was great. It so captured the way that I, at various points in my life, have like somehow you kind of don't want to take responsibility for it. You know, it, it's it, yeah. as if as if people would you know blame us. You know, let's let's take, yeah. let's, let's blame the doctors. <laughs> Yeah. Well, also it was like, you know, why don't you wear glasses? Are you vain? And it wasn't, you know, I would have been happy to have glasses uh, if, if there had been glasses that could, you know, do any good. Um, And uh, you know, so I, I did blame the medical establishment. It was like, okay, so you've given me this diagnosis, but essentially you've, you've not told me what to do. You know, this is really true. And, and I found this very much as a person. So my, my situation was sort of my eyesight's been getting like a little bit worse from the day I was born to now I'm in my uh, early 50s. Um, and uh, and I now describe myself as legally blind or, or, or just blind. Uh, that probably started about uh, 10 years ago. So that that part of your journey really resonated with me kind of, you know, of, of sort of making a decision just to say I'm blind and, and how much easier life got uh, once I once I did that, you know, because the alternative, frankly, is that people thought I was a weirdo. You know, now yeah. I'm sure they still think I'm a weirdo, but less so and for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. It has nothing and, to do with the lack of sight. Uh, exactly. But yeah. Exactly. But, uh, and, and the thing is that, that when you, um, uh, now they can put me in a box, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. as you sort of discuss in the book, there are real problems with that. But in some ways, there are benefits, right? Because people know kind of, they have a sense, okay, what you do with a blind person is you help them. 
right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if somebody's just like shuffling along, looking back and forth, their eyes are maybe not moving in the directions you would expect, and they're very hesitant, maybe they have their hands out in front of them, people have no idea what to do with that person. But you take Mm -hmm. that exact person and you put a white stick in their hand, and they're like, oh, I should go and offer them help getting across the street or finding their their gate at the airport. Um, And so while it can certainly be the case that sometimes you feel like, gosh, I know what I'm doing here, don't don't infantilize me, uh, for the most part, uh, I mean, I've really made a uh, mission to just be, you know, s- just super appreciative all the time because it's so hard for people to tell uh, yeah. whether I have it under control or not. Yeah. One thing that's sort of uh, funny, and I don't, maybe you have a, a strategy for this, is that people will often say, um, well, one thing they'll say is you don't look blind. And um, <laughs> by that, I think they mean, you know, who are they comparing me to? And I think more often than not, they're comparing me to what sighted actors do in movies, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're portraying blindness. And so they have a sort of blank stare and they're kind of bumping into things and so on and so forth. And, you know, I do have some residual vision. I don't, it's not particularly useful to me in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's there. Um, But, you know, so when people say, well, how much can you see? I'm, I'm more inclined to say, just assume I see, see nothing um, because mm-hmm. um, right. what, what vision is coming to me is can be kind of, as you say, dangerous. It can be yeah. kind of distracting. You know, sometimes I can think yeah. that or I'm you kid yourself something. that you know what's going on when, when you don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'll like so, go to Peter, put a piece of paper in a trash can and then discover that's not a trash can. That's a small yeah. child. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I, I talk to the, the, the sweater on the bed and thinking it's the cat, you know, the, the cat is used to my weird behavior. Um, yeah. So tell me about, um, let's talk about teaching since, since we both do it. And since mm-hmm. I think, you know, people are sometimes surprised that blind people are, are able to be uh, effective as, as teachers and professors. Tell me about your experience uh, teaching classes blind and, and uh, the places that are challenges or the things that people think will be challenges that aren't and, and all that. Um, yeah, I've been teaching at the university level since 1991. Uh, so really after the ADA passed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, f- things have changed over the years, but I think my my behavior in classes remains the same. Um, I, you know, I have to announce the first day of class, you know, I, I am blind and here's how that's going to affect you. So I don't really want to get into a whole narrative about my history and, you know, what it means to me and so on and so forth. But I'll say, you know, I can't see you raising your hands, okay? I can't see the, you know, interested look on your face. Um, so we're <laughs> going to have to find other ways to communicate. And and students get it, you know? I mean, so in a, in a, a large lecture class, you know, okay, so you can't raise your hands uh, to ask a question. So sometimes I'll say, okay, people in the last two rows, any questions, just shout it out, you know, mm-hmm. and so I can sort of uh, get it that way. And, and students, I mean, students adapt. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a problem. In a small class, in a seminar type class, we're all seated, sitting around the table, but, you know, nobody's going to raise their hand anyway. Um, so, uh, I'll sometimes say to that. the students, I'll be like, look, I can't see your hands if they're raised. Um, so, you know, call out if you have questions. I know you think that this is going to descend into a yeah. Hobbesian war of all against uh, yes. all, but really it's going to be fine. I've done this many times. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all good. It's a little tricky at, at, at Harvard Business School where I teach. It's a little tricky because in a typical class, 50% of the students grade is class participation. So mm. there actually is kind of sometimes uh, quite a bit of competition for, for airtime, as the students yeah. put it. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and so I will say that has been a child, like, like in a class, if I, I don't teach a class that has that format anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. and when I did most recently, which was over at MIT Sloan, um, I had a grad student call on students for me, uh, yeah. which, uh, the school was nice enough to provide. And I had this phenomenal, uh, actually two phenomenal TAs who are now top, uh, professors, uh, mm-hmm. in their field. So I was very privileged to have, uh, to have that assistance, uh, because the students are, are pretty sensitive, right? You know, if they're, if they feel like, oh, the, 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 the person calling on the students isn't doing a good job. He's not, you know, calling on the right side of the room or he's, yeah. you know, calling on one gender over the other or whatever. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's affecting their future. So they're, they yeah. are going to be pretty, pretty sensitive about it. 
I do the same thing in large classes because it's a, a commonplace, you know, in, in larger classes that you do have a graduate assistant or reader or somebody, you know, somebody in the room. And so I'll get them to just keep a, you know, put a check mark by people's names as they speak. I also make it a practice to, to have students say their name before they speak um, because I'm not going to learn 50 voices. You know, I might learn 10 voices, but, um, you know, and, and people figure it out, you know, they say, oh, this is, this is Georgina, this is so-and-so. And, uh, you know, and, and it has a side benefit in that, you know, the students should know the names of the people sitting next to them and, you know, who else is in the class. Um, so it's, it's not a big problem. Um, in terms of other, other things that I do as a blind professor, I'm an English professor, so I do a lot of reading of student papers. Um, and in the decades that I've been teaching, of course, the technology has changed. And now uh, it, it's uh, easy, you know, and kind of standard that students submit their papers as an email or they submit it through the course uh, what do you call the course management system, you know, so, so it's all electronic. And then I can use the, the sort of standard features of word processing to put comments, um, you know, in, in the margin and, and do corrections and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, type uh, a, a, a comprehensive comment at the end and then, you know. And, and do you have the computer read out loud to you or do you just Oh, yes, so I use the screen reader. No, I yeah. use the screen readers for, I don't know. I've been, yeah, a, yeah. I, I've been reading with my ears for, I don't know, 40 years now, you know, uh, easily. So, yeah, I thought I thought the dis, the discussion in sight unseen of the of uh, of the issue and 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 the way in which you sort of uh, you know the, the people sometimes perceive it as not really reading mm -hmm. uh, when you read by voice is so interesting and um, I find more and more and of course that that book was is from twenty years ago now um, it's I mean of course everybody's listening to podcasts which are kind of an in between mm -hmm. sphere and yeah. then books on tape the audiobooks through people's phones have become super common and yeah. more and more of my students are using. Um, um, using interfaces like Voice Dream Reader to yeah. uh, to read their homework and stuff, it'll read it out loud to them, and often they look at the screen at the same time, so they're doing this yeah. sort of mixed mode input. Yeah. And I'm starting to believe that this is just the way that everybody should read. That it's just a, a, a it's just one of these things where it's just a superior method of reading that I know everybody would have been doing all the time if it had been available, and it just wasn't available to us. That, that is using both. I'm not pretending that listening only is superior to reading with one's eyes, uh, but if if one is sighted and can do do both. I think everybody should probably be doing that. And yeah. if you can't, uh, listening is pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually recently was writing a, a, a book chapter. Somebody commissioned me to write a book chapter about oral reading. And I realized that since I wrote Sight Unseen, just as you say, um, oral reading has become much more widespread among sighted people. You know, and so that you don't hear people saying, oh, I listened to the audiobook. I didn't really read it, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I'm I, I'm also aware, uh, you know, as a teacher, I'm trying to teach to everybody who's in the room. And sometimes I say to my students, you know, if everybody in the room was blind, uh, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't use PowerPoint. You know, I'll use PowerPoint and I use PowerPoint because I know that. A lot of students, who, and this they wouldn't necessarily define themselves as, as disabled, have trouble retaining information that's just delivered orally. So I can put together a PowerPoint slide, and you know people can look at it, and they can hear me speak. Um, but I think I think of PowerPoint as an assistive technology for sighted people, because apparently yeah. sighted people have a hard time if they're not looking at something. Well, you know, I, it, it's funny. I, I, I would, I, I sometimes say that the the number one thing I've learned in my years as a as a teacher, as a professor, whatever, is that people learn differently. Um, and and in fact, I myself basically learn by talking, which is to say. I don't really understand anything until I digest it and then say it back mm. to the person in my own words. And even though, you know, I'm essentially repeating their concepts back to them, it's like I, I kind of almost have to be – and I will call people on the phone and be like, I need you to help me figure something out. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. I just like have to talk about it and mm. I, I can't just do it to a blank wall. So will you pay, <laughs> pretend yeah. to pay attention? Yeah, yeah that's interesting. And, 
And, and there's definitely these visual spatial learners who like if they don't see pictures and other things, they can't get anywhere. And I'm probably not a great professor for those people. I mean, I try to be a good professor for everybody, but I'm just not, you know, sometimes there's a picture that really tells the story mm-hmm. and I'm not the guy who can deliver that picture to them. And I, I feel bad, you know, that I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not teaching as effectively as I could for that subset. But if mm-hmm. people like words and numbers, I'm, I'm a good guy for that. I'm good with words yeah. and numbers. <laughs> I mean, one, one thing that I've, I've done um, in classes is, you know, I don't write on the blackboard. You know, there's no point. Yeah. Um, yeah, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to put something, you know, it's like it's a, it's a way to have information that's there. And, you know, I don't, don't necessarily have it on the PowerPoint, whatever. And so I give students the option, and this can count towards their participation, to be the scribe for the day, meaning that they'll write on the blackboard. And basically I say, you know, just write your notes, you know. And... Um, so this is an option that often students who don't like to talk in class will take advantage of because they, oh, oh I can just write on the blackboard. That's easy. Um, and several things happen. One is that, okay, so everybody's watching what the student is doing and they're very attentive. And then at various points, I'll stop and say, um, okay, what, what did they write down? What would you add to their notes? Is there anything else that you would put in here? So it sort of gives you a, a, an opportunity to review um, in, in, in action. Um, and then the other thing that's funny about it is that those students who are up there, you know, in the performance space of the classroom <laughs> by the blackboard, suddenly they'll start talking, you know, so I'll be asking a question of the class and suddenly it's the student who's at the blackboard who will say, oh, you know, and it's, it's like they've crossed over into the teacher's space and it gives them this different kind of confidence. And then, and then they go back in the next class, they're back in their chair. And then suddenly they, they have this newfound confidence to, to, to speak up. So it's a funny nice. um, thing. I've also had students, you know, and I say, write the notes that you would write in your, in your, in your notebook. And um, so I say, you know, if you want to make a doodle or you want to, you know, are there, are there sort of little things? And I had a student a couple of years ago who had been uh, an animator at Pixar. Uh, and so she could draw really, really well. And everybody loved her notes because it would be illustrated with all these little creatures and so on and so forth. And everybody would come up and take pictures of her notes just because they liked uh, the drawing. Oh, neat. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. So let's talk about Helen Keller. I'm writing letters to Helen Keller, thinking through Helen Keller. Well, I think, you know, Helen Keller is kind of held up as this this impossible role model. Oh, look at poor Helen Keller. She was she was totally blind and totally deaf and she never complained. If Helen Keller were here and and she said if she were here and she said to us, look. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Okay, so let's so let's talk about Helen Keller. Well, before we talk about Helen Keller, let's talk about the um, the idea of the book and the approach to the book, in particular, taking a you know real person who lived and writing about them in what feels like a a fictionalized or blend of fact and fiction way. And I'm really curious what you think of that. Generally speaking, kind of as a literature professor, uh, how you feel about that that uh, approach to literature? I mean, if if you know, thirty years from now, somebody wants to write a book about Georgina Klieg and uh, and wants to you know you know fictionalize elements, is that is that a okay? And so on and so forth. Um, well, I would say that that book, you know, I, I didn't invent. Um, the, the the idea of blending fact and fiction in in a literary way um so i did it in a in a particular way with that book for a particular reason and the reason was that you know helen keller is this huge figure you know and she comes to us you know nowadays i think she comes to us mainly in fictionalized form you know Mm-hmm. Even though things like the, the movie The Miracle Worker is based, in fact, you know, it was based on autobiographical mm-hmm. writing. Um, yeah. And so it's already hard to know what 
<laughs> you know, what is the real Helen Keller and what sort of a fabrication. So that was one thing. Um, the other thing was when I started really doing research on, on Helen Keller, you know, her life was very well documented. Um, mm -hmm. He published, you know, I don't know how many books that were autobiographical writing. And then there are all sorts of biographical accounts. I mean, when she was alive and since she's died and so on and so forth. Um, plus the sort of fictionalized versions of that. And, um, you know, so you feel like you can look at a specific date in a specific year and know what she did and what she ate and where she went and who she talked to. But the question remains, it's like, well, what was she thinking? You know, we sort of know these, these facts. And so that was kind of the, the, the idea behind, um, uh, that book. And I, at the time I was writing about some other, other figures in the same way, but they were in shorter pieces. So I wrote about mm. Charles Darwin and I wrote about Lewis Carroll and anyway, some other people who were also figures who had very well documented lives. Um, I, you know, it's the, the reason, so just a, yeah, go ahead. The reason that Sorry. I chose to write it in an epistolary form, that is today in the form of letters, is that when you do research on Helen Keller, of course, she wrote millions of letters. I mean, an, an unbelievable number of letters. And some of them were kind of form letters and some of them were real, you know, communications. And, you know, this is in the, in the day when people wrote letters. That was how people communicated. Yeah. And so when you do research on her, you get all these um you're reading letters by her to someone and you don't want to always have the other person's mm. side. And so it, it kind of stimulates your imagination to think of, well, what is she responding to here? Why is she, you know, making this point so on and so forth and almost to fill in the other person's um, side of the conversation. And so that was kind mm -hmm. of the, the impetus to write it the way that I did. Well, you know, the, the thing of, um, uh, my, my, I read a I read a quote from the um, uh, uh, George R. R. Martin, uh, you know, who wrote uh, Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. and he was saying how funny it is to him that there's all these young people who adore his books, um, and they and and then if he asks them about history class in high school, they say, "Oh, that's boring. I hate that." And he's like, "Well, I stole all this stuff yeah. from history." This, yeah. <laughs> and and I asked my brother about it because my brother's a history professor, and uh. he said, "Look, we understand exactly what's happening there. I mean, there's an obvious." thing, which is George R. Martin gets to pick the most interesting things that happened in history and he uh -huh. can skip over, you know, bo a boring part. But, um, but I rather said the, the, um, the thing that's so crucial that you have in a novel, but that you don't have in history is people's internal monologue. Right. Yeah. And so you can say, aha, what was, you know, what was the King thinking at that moment? And in a novel, you can just say the King thought to himself, you know, ah, if I don't kill this person, then eventually blah, blah, blah. Right. Whereas in, in a historian simply can't, uh, uh, do that. And so um, there's just sort of constant temptation when we think about the past to want to, you know, make the narrative so much more, um, you know, immediate by, yeah. uh, by filling in, by filling in yeah. the other person's thoughts. I mean, the, the other thing though, that I'm doing in the Helen Keller book is that it's, 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 you know, it's speculative nonfiction. It's biographical in that I am dealing with facts. I mean, there are facts about her life that I can support. You know, I could I could publish a, an annotated version that would have footnotes to all you know the things that happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also autobiographical in that I'm writing letters to Helen Keller, and I'm I'm kind of thinking through Helen Keller. So I'm, I'm really literally forcing myself to say, okay, she's actually a human being and I'm actually a human being. And I, I believe that there are sort of common, uh, common elements to being a human being. And so she was in this situation. We know the facts. I can imagine myself in that situation. Maybe what would I have thought? What I, what would I have been feeling? So it's never, so I never, I mean, I, I did try to write the book as sort of pure fiction, you know, from her point of view mm -hmm. and it didn't work for me. And so I had to, mm -hmm. I sort of had to keep that, that version of myself kind of animating uh, the narrative as it was going along. 
because it's it, it's really as much about me coming to terms with Helen Keller yeah. as it is about Helen Keller. Um, and you were saying before about how the, that you think through talking. Um, I really think through writing. A, a lot of times I don't, you know, something happens to me and I don't know what I, I don't know what I think about it. I have to go home and write about yeah. it. And, yeah. and so the Helen Keller book is kind of that, uh, you know, to the nth degree. It's like, you know, I had all this resentment toward Helen Keller and, you know, I found her annoying and so on and so forth, but something, <laughs> you know, something. I have to say that when I, when I, what, what last night, when I, when I told, told my wife, I was interviewing you and, and I told her about reading Blind Rage, she said, oh, I hate Helen Keller. I'm yeah. like, you hate Helen Keller? She's like, well, I guess I just hate the miracle worker. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. like, obviously I don't actually know Helen Keller. It's just the, the image and, and all that. So yeah. So tell us about your resentment and, and, and about <laughs> sort of the notion of how people talk to blind people about Helen Keller. I have to admit, I did not have to have this experience because I wasn't sort of coded as blind when I was young. I was just a uh, kid with, I was just a nerdy kid with bad eyesight and thick glasses and all that. Yeah. Um, so, but especially being a girl and, and, and being thought of as blind. Yeah. T- tell us about that experience. Well, I think, you know, Helen Keller is kind of held up as this role, this impossible role model. Right. Um, and, yeah. and the, it's, it's not that anybody said this to me out loud, but it was what I always sort of felt. It was like, oh, you know, look at poor Helen Keller. She was, she was totally blind and totally deaf and she never complained, you know, and you're this like, you know, <laughs> imperfectly blind person. And, you know, no, what, what have you got to complain about? And so of course, yeah. as a child, I, you know, I was resentful. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so you sort of. You, you get mean about the, the, the people, you know, it's like the, the, the teacher's pet in school. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody thinks she's so great. Um, so, the, you, you know, once, once they're in the, play, the playground and you, and you fight back. Um, so, you know, that was sort of what I felt about her in childhood. And, and it was also, you know, this sort of enforced inspiration of Helen Keller. It's like, oh, we're supposed to be in, in, inspired by her. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, there are many figures in history that you can point to that, that people say, oh, yeah, they're, they're an inspiration. But it's a hard time to pin down what it is that we're supposed to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were sort of the attitudes when I was a, a child. And then as an adult, I thought, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't blame Helen Keller for the use that others made of her life story. You know, she couldn't help it. Right. And so then I really started to buckle down and, and do the research and read Helen Keller's own writing. And I said, well, maybe you can blame Helen Keller for, for um, <laughs> this, this image of herself because a lot of her uh, autobiographical writing is very sunshiny and flowery and everything was so wonderful and perfect and everybody's so good to her and so on and so forth. And it's just like, really? really, you know, there was never a bad day. Um, yeah. And so that was really what, what started me because I, I could find evidence of bad days, of things when bad things happen. And yet even when she writes about them, it's like she kind of slips over them, you know, in this almost, uh, yeah, she says, yeah, this happened, but then I moved on, you know. And and so, so if, Helen Keller, if Helen Keller were here mm-hmm. and, and she said, to, if she were here and she said to us, look, that's what the world needed from me. I needed to pretend mm-hmm. that every bad thing that happened, I just powered through and overcame because that is how I yeah. was able to inspire people. There were so many people, yeah. especially you go back a hundred years, so many people, whether soldiers after the war or illnesses they couldn't cure, you know, dealing with so many difficult things. And and I felt that that was my purpose was yeah. to serve as an inspiration to them, not to be a whiner. Um do we buy that argument, or, or well, do we I do. I mean, I, I, you have to show the truth about yourself. Well, I I, I believe that. I mean, I believe that um, you know, given when she was living and the sort of, I mean, who else was her? Who was you know? Who was her role model? You know, who who you know? What other deaf blind uh, woman could she look yeah. to to say, oh, that's that's the way to live your life? And you know, I think. Um, yeah, that she she recognized she she wanted to do good in the world, 
And she recognized that this was um, sort of the, the role that was available to her. I don't think it was immediate. I mean, I think there was a period of, of struggle for her where she, um, even ex- for her, she expressed uh, some frustration that people, uh, for instance, would dismiss her more political and polemical writing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say, oh, no, we don't want to hear about your opinions about World War One, you know. We want to hear mm-hmm. about when you were a child at the pump and learning to say water, you know, um, and that's all we really want from from you. And and she expressed some some you know discomfort with that. Um, but mm-hmm. I think at a at a certain point she got uh, you know for instance when she started to be the main spokesman uh, spokesperson and fundraiser for um, the American Foundation for the Blind, um, she knew that she was going to speak to these groups and, you know, uh, that they were giving money. And in effect, they were giving money because it was Helen Keller. Um, and she said, okay, mm-hmm. that's fine. I, I, I can question their motives. Um, but basically the, the cause is more important than my, you know, my particular feelings about it. So, um, you know, so there was an you know, element one, of one thing that's so fascinating. One thing that's so fascinating in the book is, is how modern, uh, some of the key issues feel. In other words, this sense that there are these celebrities and we aren't seeing their true selves because it's all going through handlers who are creating an image for them, that's something that is, you know, I don't go an hour now without that subject coming up, you know, in something I'm yeah. reading or a conversation I'm having, right? Um, and people feel like that's a today thing. But no, here it is, you know, 100 years ago in 1919, the exact same thing going on. Were, were we seeing the true Helen Keller or was that an image uh, that was created for us? Yeah. And so, I'm interested in your thoughts on that generally and then also on the specific question. It was only maybe five years ago for the first time that I read something that suggested that maybe some of this was a fake, you know, that, that essentially she wasn't saying those things, that the that the handler just learned uh, what how Helen, you know, would should, would or should or 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 ideally would from a public relations point of view respond to a certain question. And so all the the, the finger writing on the palm wasn't really necessary mm-hmm. uh, for her to quote unquote give a speech. So any thoughts you have on on all that set of facts? Well I will say, you know, the the thing about celebrity is to recognize that Helen Keller was a worldwide white celebrity from the age of eight years old. Uh, uh-huh. I mean people knew her all over the world. Um, and so there, there wasn't really much that she could do that wasn't, you know, newsworthy. Um, and, um, you know, so, so that was very much a part of her, her life. Uh, she didn't really have a private life in the sense that, that we usually think of that. Um, so there's that, um, the, the question about, um, you know, these sort of questions, which I, I raise in the book, but I ultimately, mm-hmm. I think I dismiss them, is about was she for real? Like when she was giving a speech and she was fingerspelling either into Ann Sullivan's hand or into, you know, another assistant later in, in life, mm-hmm. um, was she actually transcribing word for word what was spoken out loud? And I would say, no, I mean, these were rehearsed speeches. They were written out. Uh, you know, there's a record of all the speeches that she gave. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, many times she, she gave them. I mean, she often in the, her lecture circuit and her fundraising circuit had this, these grueling schedules of multiple appearances in a single day and, you know, riding long train trips overnight and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, the, the speeches were in some sense memorized. Um, and it may have mm-hmm. been that the, the, the ha- finger spelling was a kind of shorthand. Okay. This is the paragraph mm-hmm. about this. And this is where we go. <laughs> okay. Now, and, now we talk about my little dog. And, exactly. yeah, and, and then, okay. Here's the, okay. Here's the part about get out your wallets now. And, uh, right. uh um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's like any public figure, you know, or, like politicians who have a stump speech, um, you know, they're, they're delivering the same words day in, day out. Um, it's not a spontaneous utterance. Uh, so there's that. Um, you know, in terms of, I mean, I think there was always this cloud around Helen Keller that's barely acknowledged that I wanted to investigate in the book about, is it for real? Is it for mm-hmm. real? Or is this just like this this woman... Uh, Ann Sullivan, who's like wanting attention, you know, 
Um, right. So, so in some ways, this will always be a mystery. But what do you think, based on all the reading and pondering and introspection you've done? Tell us what you think. Oh, I think she was totally for real. I think she was totally for real. I think um, her communication with the people who were closest to, to her, uh, you know, as with anybody, you know, she could communicate in a in a sort of shorthand. Um, but all mm-hmm. the, all the accounts of her, people who knew her. Uh, you know, people who learned to fingerspell so they could communicate with her. Um, yeah, I, th- I think she was totally, you know, to- totally as presented. Um, and I, this- and I, I, I stand by that because I think anything else is, you know, does damage to her and it does damage to the mm-hmm. likes of us. You know, mm-hmm. because the same questions, I mean, you started the interview talking about, you know, Oh, we're we're blind professors, and people wonder what that, how that works, you know. Because the same questions. I mean, you started the interview talking about, you know, oh, we're we're blind professors, and people wonder what that, how that works. Pretty, and you're not really a serious <laughs> researcher, you know. It's just kind of this novelty, and so on and so forth. And so, I have to defend mm-hmm. Helen Keller um, because, in effect, yeah. I'm defending myself. I was interested in in your discussion of the idea of of her as uh, pure and virginal and sexless and and that element of her image and it reminded me of a controversy that pops up from time to time about uh, I don't know I guess uh, I guess her, her name was actually Anna Franca right I guess Anne Frank mm-hmm. uh, and and I think there's parts of the the diary that are cut out mm-hmm. in, in at least most editions or whatever because they reveal that hey this was a teenage girl who was starting to have sexual thoughts mm-hmm. as as, uh, as all of us do as teenagers and um and so I'm just fascinated with this generally, and also this notion of sort of secular saints, Mm -hmm. which I feel like has been a big thing historically, but maybe we don't do so much anymore, or maybe we do it, but then we just tear them down so fast (laughs) that it, it, I mean, I was asking around, and the only person anybody could come up with that they thought really had that status today was Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. Um, But but beyond that, it's like, you know, yeah, they'll they'll raise somebody up for a few weeks or a few months, but then, of course, we'll decide that they're terrible. You know, Taylor Swift or somebody will have her moment where people think she's saintly, and then every Everybody decides we have to turn on her for some reason, and and so forth. But um, I don't know. Just just general thoughts on on this concept because I, I thought I thought you had interesting things to say in the book about about those issues. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know the, the the status as a secular saint was one that was imposed on her, um, and you know, again, it goes back to the sort of expedient of of her uh, sort of accepting that role. Uh, because of, you know, that, that she wanted to raise awareness about blind people, you know. Um, but the other, the other question really is about her sexuality and about, um, you know, a, a kind of veil <laughs> to cast over uh, this issue while she was a, a alive, you know, because she did, um, the, the incident that I write about in the book was, you know, that she was briefly engaged to a man, and then, mm-hmm. and we don't really know exactly what happened, but we know that uh, there was some objection on the side of her family and the man went away. Okay. Um, and she, she really didn't have any contact with him after that. And what we don't know is, I mean, first of all, we don't know the, the, the nature of their relationship, um, mm-hmm. we don't know the nature of the objection really. Was it that the people around her could see that he had, his motives were not pure, uh, you know, that maybe he, he thought she would be a, you know, a meal ticket, uh, cause this was really yeah. right at the, at the sort of peak of her, um, kind of independent earning power, um, mm-hmm. uh, or what? You know, or was it an anxiety about, well, what if she had children? What would that, you know, how would that work? You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, plus just a sort of anxiety about, you know, and it's always an anxiety about difference. It's like difference and sexuality. Oh, we don't want to think about that. So it's sort of, it's sort of easier to cast somebody as a saint who's outside of, uh, sexuality, um, uh, than to sort of really think about it. The other thing which I think swirls around this is um, the, the, the relationship between Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan, 
which, you know, I mean, they lived in, in complete proximity for 50 years. I mean, it's kind of unimaginable how, you know, sort of closely associated they were. And, you know, in some sense, even raising the question about whether or not there was a a sexual component to this relationship sort of seems beside the point, you know, Um, it's, it's really hard Mm -hmm. to imagine two people who were sort of more closely linked for as, as long as they were. Um, And, you know, and so that, you know, there are some people, and there is in the biographical record, there are some people who, who knew them, who uh, assumed, you know, sort of behind closed doors that there was a sexual relationship. Uh, you know, we don't know. There's no proof, you know. Uh, and, and to my mind, it sort of doesn't, it's sort of beside the point um, to worry about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that uh, they were protected from a sort of public scrutiny of this relationship in that Anne Sullivan also had this sort of, you know, sort of saintly maternal self-sacrificing teacher figure um, that made the relationship, you know, even well into Helen's adulthood, that that, that this, this, um, this connection sort of made it safe and palatable. Um, So, yeah, but I mean, I think it's something that I really wanted to poke around <laughs> and ask those questions, yeah. um, even though I, I, I don't come up with definitive answers, but just to say, you know, I, why yeah. should we assume that, that, that she didn't have a sexual life? Right. I thought it was funny when you talked about, you know, how, how many times you've been, you know, asked whether, you know, sex was different for blind people because <laughs> it, it's it's like, I mean, obviously there's a, a, a visual component to sex, but it would be hard to think of many of the really important areas of human endeavor where not being able to see would be less important. As yeah, you know, exactly. like lots of people have sex in the dark. I, know. I, mean, do pe- I mean, people never ask, you know, is uh, is eating, you know, is, is like, does, is food Yes, different so, yeah, so blind people. I mean, they might say, "How do you cut up your steak?" But yeah. you know, people understand that eating a piece of broccoli is the same experience, whether you're blind or not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's it's, it's other very senses funny. are involved. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> they um. So um. So let's uh. So let's talk about the the latest book, which, as I said, I haven't been able to read yet. But hopefully, you'll um you'll bug the people at Bookshare and and, yeah, uh, and get it and get it going for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is available at the NLS, um, so if you okay. yeah, you can get it there, uh, and your listeners can get it there. And so, so, t- so, it's, so it's about it's about art and sight, is that right? It's called "More Than Meets the Eye: What Blindness Brings to Art," and the the mm-hmm. subtitle I think is really important. So it's about blindness and visual art, and mm-hmm. it is not a uh, how-to manual for museum people about providing access. Um, I often mm-hmm. speak at museums, and the first thing I have to say is, I'm not going to tell you the 10 easy steps to make your, your collection accessible. Um, it's really kind of a meditation about um, questions of, of blindness and visual art, which was sort of prompted by the question of how does a museum make its collection available to blind and visually impaired mm-hmm. people. But I sort of go back and I think about... Um, the image of blindness in culture, specifically in philosophy, uh, and how um, the the figure of the you know in in uh, enlightenment philosophy, there's this figure known as the man born blind, um, who sort of mm-hmm. held up as uh, you know if you want to contemplate human consciousness, you compare a sort of normative human consciousness to that of the man born blind. Um, and uh, so I, I look at that figure. I, I refer to that figure as the hypothetical blind man, not because okay. um, it doesn't happen. I mean, obviously, people you and it didn't happen to you and me, but there are people who are born blind. Um, but mm-hmm. I think what these philosophers fail to recognize is that blind people, by and large, grow up in visual culture even if they're born blind. And, you know, certainly today, you know, they go to school, they read books, they uh, listen to media, that's all created for and by sighted people. And whatever they may not understand in terms of visual phenomena, like 
color or light or perspective or these terms um, that, you know, they come up with some kind of understanding of it. So this idea of this alien creature, the, the man born blind, um, is really kind of a, a myth that I think needs to be dismantled. But it happens to be behind a lot it's, of... It's funny, I keep, thinking, I, I keep thinking to myself that if I were like 10 times smarter and 100 times better of a writer, uh, the book I could write that would really be a meaningful book would be a, essentially a science fiction book, but it could be set in the year 2019, but in the year 2019 of a world where sight never developed yeah. right so yeah. just like sight didn't evolve yeah. and then what would but but intelligence did right yeah and so what would human civilization look like if nobody could see yeah but you have all these smart people who can hear and feel and taste yeah and they're gonna still want to have all the good things in life and build but are they going to build tall buildings are they going to you know yeah. what, what's going to be impossible what's going to be possible i don't have the brilliance or creativity to yeah. create that world but if yeah. there's any aspiring science fiction writers out there go well for it. there's a there's a <laughs> story by hg wells called the country of the blind where he he does some of that and this was published in 1900 so you know oh wow you know but um he 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 sort of speculates on what would it be like if um this people you know so he sort of creates this situation where people in this small isolated place in the i don't know the andes or somewhere uh are all are all blind and they sort of evolve a culture um you know, where they, they do what they need to do. You know, it's a, it's an agrarian society. So they're raising food and they have llamas, you know, <laughs> uh, but they manage, uh, you know, they manage and they create a belief system and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, one, one could build from that and sort of think about, um, that in, in, uh, update it to now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, but but to go back to the, um, yeah. uh, my book, so I start with this sort of philosophical thing, and then I, I do talk about um, uh, experiences in in museums. So so I talk about my experience of touch tours in museums, and when they mm-hmm. work and when they don't work, and how they could be done better. Um, and then I talk mm-hmm. a lot. I talk quite a bit about audio description. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, of films, but also of, of, of uh, you know, fine arts. Uh, and I conclude the book and it's sort of the, the culmination with a chapter about blind artists, artists, visual artists who are blind. Uh, and so I talk ab- about a number of them and sort of figure out what it is that they're doing and, you know, um, what we can, as a culture, can make of um, their ideas about vision and blindness. Um, so that's, that's where I go in that book. Yeah. Well, uh, Kim Charlson, who introduced you and me, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the American council for the blind or of the blind told, uh, was, was telling me about, uh, because I've been watching less and less TV. I'll watch it if I can watch with my family so that I can mm-hmm. you know, say, Hey, what happened there? But, but otherwise, and she was like, Oh no, you know, the audio descriptions are really good now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can enjoy stuff that, uh, that you wouldn't have thought you could and all that. Uh, I haven't tried it out yet. Have you, uh, you know, you write, um, uh, a bunch about, uh, movies and, and mm-hmm. such in, in, um, insight unseen, uh, any, any thoughts on that experience? Well, I mean, now there is audio description and for instance, the, you know, a lot of the streaming platforms, like Netflix um, offers audio description of all their in-house productions. So any, any Netflix production made in the last five years will have audio description available. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, can, I can critique the, the quality of it. And I think when I was writing about it, it was more about trying to figure out, uh, you know, there are a lot of published guidelines about audio description um, and some of them, I think, are sensible. Can, can I just be dumb and ask how it works? I mean, in other words, is the point that the characters on the screen are talking and at the same time somebody is is saying, oh, he runs over to her side as he yeah. says those words? Yeah, or, there's, a, yeah. there's a voiceover track that you mm-hmm. can – I mean, like on Netflix, people access it the, the same place that they access captioning. So you click on something and then there's a voice that comes on in spaces between dialogue. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it says she opens the door or she, you know, she looks angrily at him or, or whatever. Um, and so it's kind of mm. filling in, um, 
uh, descriptive information in between lines of dialogue and other sound effects. Um, hmm. And sometimes, I don't know, uh, to my own, and it's because I've, you know, I, I, I have experienced movies before there was audio description. So, you know, for me, sometimes it's like more information than I, I need. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's there. I, I think sometimes it could be done better. I've, I've learned from my students that there are now many sighted people who turn it on. Um, mm-hmm. And this, you know, if you think of your students, it's a way to, to facilitate multitasking. So they've got their Netflix on their phone and they have the audio description on so that they can direct their attention to their laptop and do something else. And then, you know, they might turn back to the phone when they hear the audio description saying something that sounds interesting, you know? So, Hmm. um, I see. Yeah. So it, it, um, what some people call it is, is that audio description turns a movie into an audio book. Um, right. So it sort of creates a a, a narrative descriptive thread, um, that connects things. So, um, you know, it's there. I, I think, you know, in some cases it could be done better. I think, I think in some ways what would be helpful would be sort of go back to basics and say, okay, how did the, the rules for doing this come to pass? And I think in some instances they came to pass because of a very uh, reductive understanding of, of what a blind person can conceptualize. Okay. But that's sort mm-hmm. of another, an, an, you know, so the, the, the first thing is, yeah, it should be available. And then the second thing is, let's figure out how to do it better. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I I'm I'm sort of um, it it seems like doing these kinds of descriptions raises all kinds of very uh, tricky issues in modern society. You know, imagine for example that there's a character who comes onto the screen who is um, gender fluid in some way, mm-hmm. right? So now the describer has to make a decision as to what information to share with the listener about what we do and don't see that might indicate the gender of this character, yeah, right? Yeah, and when when presumably you know the point of introducing a character with this particular appearance or not not the whole not the point, but you know, a, a one element of the artist's intent is to leave these questions up to the viewer's discretion. And yeah. I, I don't know, it's uh, it must be a very tricky job. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you've sort of hit on something that's much debated uh, among the, the practitioners. Um, it's like, yeah. you know, race. Do you mention a, a, a person's skin color or hair color or mm-hmm. any other, right. you know, markers of race? Right. Or, or attractiveness level, right? Yeah, exactly. It's very clear sometimes yeah. in TV that a person comes on screen and the fact that that person's exceptionally gorgeous yeah. is supposed to is, be is part one of, of the, the key elements of what's going on in that scene, you know, that the character, the hero is reacting to the incredible gorgeousness of this woman who just walked onto the screen or what have you. And now as a describer, you have to say, um, this is a serious babe we're talking about. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or, 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 or say, no, no, that's not my job to say that, but yeah. then the viewer's not going to get why the, the yeah. hero is so agog. You yeah. Know, yeah. I mean, this is, again, this is something that's much debated. Uh, the, the comparison that I draw is like, you know, when I watched movies with friends, I mean, not in the movie theater, but like on, you know, at home, I may be asking questions like, what is, what is she holding in her hand? What is it? What does the sign say over the door? You know? So it's like mm-hmm. those sorts of things, but yeah, people make the, make, will make comments. It's like, wow, he's cute. You know, and then I'll think, oh, is that that relevant or is it just because he's a movie star? Of course he's good looking, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, is is that is that sort of part of the plot? Does that explain why something happened? Exactly. Television, you know, it's like it's like, you know, I grew up with uh, Gilligan's Island, uh, Uh a show on which the woman who was in the Miss America pageant was supposed to be the plain girl on the (laughs) island. Right. You know, (laughs) so if somebody on TV is really good looking, right, Dawn Wells, who played that role, was in the Miss America pageant. Like she was like Miss. Yeah, she, mm-hmm. I forget which state, but you know, she was Miss Kentucky or something. Yeah. Right? Um, I, uh, I actually had the opportunity once to have dinner with uh, Tina Louise, who played uh, oh, who that, played Ginger, uh, which was, uh, was uh, very, uh, I mean, you know, relatively recently. And um, and I uh, I asked, uh, I, and of course, I couldn't really see her, uh, but but uh, obviously, she was uh, very beautiful as a young mm-hmm. woman. And so I asked uh, I asked a friend of mine who was at the dinner. I'm like, so what does she look like? He said she's probably the most beautiful 74 year old woman oh, in the world. Wow. He said she looks like a really really. Good 
good-looking 52-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty precise. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My my friend is a, of a precise nature. That's, uh-huh. that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. They, oh, oh, by the way, you know, when I was a kid, Helen Keller jokes were a big thing. Did, uh, did, yeah. did, when you were working on this, did you run across the Helen uh, Keller yeah. jokes? I, I, I ran across <laughs> a, a really significant um, scholarly article about Helen Keller jokes. But yeah, as a kid, I knew them all. Um, and I told them with some relish. Yeah. Um, do, you, do, you have a fa- do you have a favorite to share with our, our oh, listeners? Oh, boy. Um, uh, while, while you're thinking, the... I'll, I'll tell the only one I can remember. Okay. Oh God. All right. I'll tell. I'll tell one while you're thinking, just yeah. to buy you some time. Which is, and this is hideously politically incorrect. So I think it's important that I uh, share with our our listeners mm-hmm. something uh, a major thing in academia, which is the use mention distinction. Uh-huh. Right. The the notion that you know there's there's using uh, a term uh-huh. that is uh, politically incorrect or whatever, and then there's merely mentioning it for yes. purposes of discussing it. So yeah. I am merely mentioning this joke. Uh-huh. In no way am I using this joke. Okay. So the joke is, um, uh, why is Helen? Ke- why was Helen Keller such a bad driver? driver right uh-huh. and uh and the answer is because she's a woman right <laughs> so yeah there are a lot along those lines that sort of yeah, turn yeah. on you know that the, the expectation is it's going to be something about her, her blindness or her deafness but it's actually something else um the one i'll tell is uh uh um okay so helen keller and ann sullivan walk into a department store Helen mm-hmm. Keller picks up her, her seeing eye dog by the tail and swings him around in a circle over her head. A sales clerk <laughs> rushing over and says to Ann Sullivan, is there, is there anything I can do to help? And Ann Sullivan calmly says, no, she's just looking around. Looking around. <laughs> nice. Now, of course, what's, what's funny about yeah, this it's, really uh... is that Helen Keller never used a service dog. She had pet dogs, but she, yeah. didn't, she didn't use a service. Anyway, but all right, let's see. We should probably wrap this up. So, so I do like to ask people at the end a couple things. One, I like to ask if people have any uh, book recommendations because you know there were years when I basically sort of couldn't see well enough to read books, but didn't have Bookshare or the other you know mm-hmm. awesome uh, audio technologies that we have now. So I feel like I've missed out on a lot of books. And in particular, I'll, I'll, I'll I'm open to anything, but I'm generally asking for you know I work hard, so when I'm reading, I want I want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. So you know, a book that you like read and think. Wow! I wish I could like. I just want to read that again right now. It was so much fun. Uh, th- those those I, I give preference over books uh, that are like um, you know uh, deep books that will change my soul, but they're not actually pleasurable to read. You know, mm-hmm. but but you know I'll take whatever you got. So that's one. And then the other is I always figure. Look, I'm new to this. I'm not really a good interviewer. If I were a much better interviewer, there's probably some story I would have elicited from you that's like a really awesome story, but I wasn't smart enough to ask the right question. So if you just want to like tell me your best story, uh, <laughs> I'll take it. So, <laughs> so or it doesn't have to be your best, but a great story that you know. And then later you can be like, oh, I've got an even better one than that. And then you know we'll do that next time we do it. Oh, I, I know that you know. I mean, whenever I do an interview, I always think of ten things after the fact that I should have said. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, a book recommendation. Um, well, I'm sorry to say this isn't going to be entertaining, um, but it was a book that that really made a difference to me. And surprisingly mm-hmm. enough, it's a book by Helen Keller. How about um, that? Uh, it's a book called The World I Live In, um, mm-hmm. which was her second uh, book publication after the story of my life. And what she does in it, which I think is really, really extraordinary, is she doesn't tell the story of her life. She tells, she answers the questions that are always sort of swirling around her about like, okay, how does a deafblind person do it? Okay. Um, So she does this, this really detailed sort of phenomenological account of her day-to-day sensory perception. And she does it, what makes it more palatable, <laughs> okay, that sounds really heavy and philosophical, but she does it in these sort of short, short um, essays, you know, so you can, you can pick, you know, like a few pages long and you can read them and sort of digest them. Um, but they're not, I mean, she's really, really deliberate about not telling an inspirational story. It's like very basic. It's like, okay, I can't hear, I can't see, 
Um, but I can feel vibrations and that, you know, that, that people are walking into the room. I can feel their footsteps through the floor. And, and so it's things like these sort of practical day-to-day mechanical things. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's something that's very hard to do um, because, you know, we live our, lead our lives and we don't necessarily analyze how we're doing things. Um, but she does that work and it's, it's really, really interesting. And it, it changed my opinion of her in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I sort of wish she'd done more of that. Um, but it's, it's, it, there's nothing else like it in, in the world, I would say. Okay. Well, so let me ask you a quick question mm-hmm. on that subject, which is, are, are there any tricks you want to recommend, any cool new technologies that you've gotten in the last couple of years that have made a difference in your life or any, any uh, ways of getting things done that you want to, uh, want to share with our listeners? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you know, one technology, I don't, have you tried Soundscape? You know, it's funny. I downloaded it a few months ago, yeah. and then I wasn't using it much. And then I turned it on. Uh, I was in New York, and I just needed to walk like a few blocks. Yeah. And it was pretty great. You know, it was like told me when the intersection was coming up, and it told me, you know, what street I was coming up to. Which yeah. Otherwise, I find myself saying to Siri every ten steps, I'm like, What's Where the am I? Here? What's Where? The address yeah, here? I know and exactly. Like, and then half the time Siri will tell you the address, and half the time Siri says, "Here's the map," and I'm like, "I don't want to see uh, yeah, the map." I know. I know. That's exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, screaming at Siri on the street corner like a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, exactly. So, I, uh, so tell me, tell me about using Soundscape though, because I think maybe I'm not getting everything I could out of it or whatever. So, well, so yeah, tell me I, I think you're getting everything out of it that that's available at the moment. But what, what, as you say, what's great about it? I was skeptical. Somebody said, "Oh, you should download this," and I was like, "Eh, I, I need, I don't need another navigation tool." Um, and what it does for people who haven't used it is it announces, um, like the 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 street names as you pass them, it, it differentiates between a, a street and like a driveway, uh, which sometimes can be tricky. Um, mm-hmm. And it also, as you're walking down the street, it, it will tell you like, what are all the businesses on the street? So here's yes. a coffee shop and here's a bank and here's a, you know, and um, yeah. What it does, I, I, I find it's very nice actually in a car. Like if yeah. you're in an Uber, yeah. make sure you're going the right way. Yeah. Otherwise, there's always this fear that if I you get the wrong thing on Uber, it's like driving it to Arizona. I know. Right? And the driver might not say anything. That's a good fare for him. You know? I know, and, exactly. <laughs> and so then Three you days later. What you're going yeah. past and you're like, oh, okay, th- this is taking me home. This yeah. is good. You know? Yeah. So, no, exactly. So it, it, it's just informational. And I, when I got it and I turned it on, I was sort of walking in my own neighborhood and I was, you know, it's like familiar streets, but I didn't know the name of that street, you know, and it was like, oh, that's interesting. And then also I've used it, yeah, in in unfamiliar cities and it's like, oh, okay, so there's a, a restaurant on the corner there. That's good to know. Yeah, the, uh, thing, the thing I think it's supposed to do that I haven't quite mastered is you like tell it your destination and it'll give you direction and it's supposed to have this like beacon thing yeah, where it like there's like a chime and you can tell by if you put your, the plugs in both ears yeah. what direction that way. That sounds neat in theory, but I haven't. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the goal ultimately, it, it doesn't give you turn by turn directions. And so mm-hmm. to do that, you have to turn it on with, um, you know, your Google Maps or whatever your your navigation is, which means that it drains your battery in like 12 seconds. So it's, it's a little right. risky for that. Uh, I mean, I think what I've read about it is that they are working to um, make it include um, turn-by-turn navigation. But it's a really promising development um, in terms of yeah. just getting information about your environment so that you don't have to stop and say, Siri, where am I? And, and, you know, these others kind of, the other thing that I love about it, um, and this seems so trivial, but I love this about it is that when you come up out of a subway or in San Francisco, it's the BART, you know, and you, you come up Mm -hmm. the stairs and you don't always know where, you you know, which way you're facing. And so you Mm -hmm. strike out in a direction and then Siri tells you, turn left, turn left, turn left. So it's like, go around in a circle. And I, I just wish that Siri would say, 
you're going the wrong way, turn around, but she never does. Um, but this right. actually, you could come up to the top of the stairs and you press a button and it says straight ahead is such and so, and such a street is to the left and such a street to, is the right. And you say, oh, so I want to go the other way, you know? Um, yes. So it, it, it like gives you that vital piece of information that it, it's hard to come by any other way. Yeah, I'll just say that I'll just say that even when I was um even when I could see, it's often very difficult yeah. to tell which direction is the right direction. And I used to say that like New York City should just like put a white dot on like the northeast corner of every intersection, mm-hmm. right? That would be a trivial thing to yeah. do. Just like paint a little bit of the curb, yeah. some, you know, yellow or something, and then everybody would know, okay, that's the northeast corner. Yeah. You know, we'll go to that. And that would, yeah. you know, be kind of a virtually free way of making getting around a lot easier. Yeah. Um for everybody. cities have an attitude of if you're not from here, you know, yeah. you know, tack with you. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, excellent, excellent. Well, I'm I'm reading a book uh, called The Last of the Doughboys, which is um, uh, which was written by an old friend of mine, uh, Richard Rubin, uh, who I knew from uh, college debate. Uh, hilarious and brilliant guy. And uh, what he did a few years back was he realized that the last of the World War One uh, veterans uh, were passing away, and so he went and interviewed everyone he could who was um, who fought in the First World War. Uh, they were all between I think like uh, 107 and 100. 13 years of age uh, and of course you know some of them were barely there but some of them were sharp as attack and had incredibly specific memories uh, of all these things that happened and uh, so it's it's extremely entertaining because he's as I say he's just this sharp funny guy uh, and beautifully written and also fascinating to you know just see you know just how different life was and of course this is sort of the same time period we're talking about with Helen Keller so it's just uh, uh, relevant in that way so uh, well Georgina thank you so so much for being with us on the podcast today this was this was a blast i really really appreciate it and um everybody should go out and buy uh buy all those books and uh read them or download them from uh bookshare which i don't know if you get any money for but you should uh, so. <laughs> that's, a, that's another that's another podcast so, thanks, thanks for taking the time okay thank all you right. randy awesome bye thanks bye you've been listening to the dangerous vision podcast a production of the massachusetts association for the blind and visually impaired I'm David Brown.